Hello and welcome to Military History Plus, the podcast that examines warfare in breadth and depth. I'm Professor Gary Sheffield and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Dr. Spencer Jones. Hi Spencer, good morning, how are you? I'm extremely well, I'm really looking forward to recording this episode. It's always a pleasure to get down to record any episode with you Gary, but I think this one, which is we hope will be part of a series, is going to be of particular interest because we're looking at one of one of certainly Britain and by extension the British Empire's most controversial and influential figures. And that, of course, is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, yeah. And uh, I was about to say this is the first part of a whatever part series, but let's leave how many parts we're going to do up in the air. It depends on how how long we bang on this morning and, and subsequently. But, you know, the, the, we say there's be more than one part to, to this series, by definition, I guess. Um, well, today we're going to be looking at, uh, at young Winston from his earliest times, I guess, through to the end of the Boer War. And specifically, in fact, in all of these episodes, we're looking at Winston Churchill at war, whether it be literally fighting in the front line or as a military leader or as a politician with a strong interest in war. So Churchill has a fascinating, if you like, non-military career, but we're not talking about that on this occasion, although I've no doubt that actually uh, it will get mentioned uh, occasionally. Strike me, be a good way to start is to put our cards on the table and say what we think about Winston Churchill. We've both been studying him for many years. You can't avoid Churchill in public discourse. He's he's everywhere, 50, whatever it is, 60 years after his death. But what do you think of Churchill as a man, as a historical figure? So I'm completely biased because, full confession, I was named after Winston Spencer Churchill. Genuinely, that is where my my name came from. It's chosen uh, actually by my grandfather, where my parents couldn't agree what to call me if I was a boy. And my grandfather is a Second World War veteran. I'd uh, fought and been um, conscripted in the Second World War, survived it all, and then was kept on as a soldier even after the war and served in Palestine for a year. He was a huge admirer of Winston Churchill, even though if we take the sort of traditional image of Winston Churchill as your high aristocrat and anti-worker and all this, which, of course, there's definitely evidence for at various times. Uh, my grandfather was every inch the working class man and yet had a tremendous admiration for him. And I think I inherited some of that because although he's a, a divisive figure, a controversial figure, even in his own lifetime, I just find him an endlessly fascinating man. And one thing I, I will certainly say is that the debate around Churchill, I don't think, will ever end. Because even in his own lifetime, he was a hugely controversial figure, but a hugely fascinating one. And yes, he made enormous mistakes, but he also had enormous successes as well. And for me, I, I can't resist being drawn to the romantic, heroic image of Winston Churchill. So that's my cards on the table. Gary, what do you make of him? I'm a bit more of a sceptic, actually. Um, I, I'd like you, I find Churchill to be absolutely fascinating, a fascinating individual. Apart from anything else, he had such a hugely long span of life in the public eye. So he was elected to Parliament, I think, in 1900, first time. Um, mm -hmm. He stepped down in 1964. Is that right? Anyway, but there's no other politician who has his longevity apart from anything else. And of course, his his fantastic achievements, but also the things that he got badly wrong, I think, make, make, make him a, a fascinating figure. 
But, and here's the big but, I don't think I like him very much as an individual. This is, this, was, this says an awful lot about me. The thing more than anything else that prejudices me against Winston Churchill is the fact that during the Second World War, as Prime Minister, he would make his hardworking staff officers and what have you stay up to the early hours of the morning with him banging on. Now, speaking as someone who likes his bed, I would find that in, you know, intolerable. And actually, it's worse than that because it was hugely insensitive on Churchill's part, basically because he could sleep into whenever he liked and have a kip in the afternoon. Uh, ordinary people did not have that luxury. So that's it's a silly thing to say. But unless I think a touch of selfishness about the man puts me off. And I'm afraid that um, I would not have voted for him. Actually, in his liberal radical phase, uh, if I'd been around in the first decade of the 20th century, I probably would have voted for him. But in 1945, absolutely not, or at any other time, that matter. So I sort of admire him. I'm fascinated by him, but I'm not particularly a fan. So sometimes people complain we agree too much on this podcast. Mm. This time, oh, daggers drawn, butting heads. We- let's, let's see where we go. Exactly. If I could just add one little thing to just finish on on the the sort of image of Churchill, I think the very fact that you and I, um, from obviously similar working backgrounds and similar academic backgrounds, can have that differing viewpoint is testament to what an interesting character he is. That we can differ and we can we can look at him in different ways. Because this is what fascinates me about Churchill. He is a romantic figure. You you can't help but be drawn to the romance of his life. But at the same time, as you say, he's also got very difficult practical elements like you say the way he bullies people by keeping them up very late at night quite deliberately of course so he can grind them down and he's he's absolutely enormous ego never dented uh, or occasionally dented but never dented for too long the dents always buffed out so he is a fascinating character and that's why we've chosen to make a, a, a series about his leadership and particularly his military experiences that's right well having put my cards on the table that's to say just a few things about the books about Churchill I most admire. Now, as a starter, we have Martin Gilbert's various writings on Churchill, uh, ranging uh, ranging from the enormously long and detailed official history to uh, much shorter books on Churchill, particularly looking at particular aspects of him. Now, I, 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 I liked Martin Gilbert. He was a very nice man, very, 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 very kind to me. And I think he did a wonderful job in providing a narrative. The problem is that if you read much of Martin Gilbert's work on Churchill, there's very little analysis. It's one thing happened after another, after another, after another. And so I think that makes Martin Gilbert's books a great quarry for the rest of us. And of course, the supporting volumes of documents are absolutely invaluable. But for me, the best and astutest commentator, historical analyst of Churchill, is actually a man writing from the left. That's Paul Addison, the late great Paul Addison of Edinburgh University, Road to 1945 fame and all the rest of it. And he wrote uh, a number of things on on Churchill, but two I've mentioned particularly. He wrote a book called Churchill on the Home Front, which looked at, as you would expect, his domestic policies. Uh, and it shows how, you know, he truly was a, a liberal radical 
under under Asquith. And he became more conservative, big and small C later on, but he never lost interest in uh, improving the lot of, of the working classes. So I'm being nice about Churchill here. <laughs> uh, and and I, I, I think that uh, Paul Addison's work, because, he, because he, he, he was a man of the left rather than a man of the right, I think is a really interesting uh, set of insights into Churchill because he also admired Churchill, as of course did Clement Attlee. So mm -hmm. Churchill's opposite number as leader of the Labour Party, prime minister when Churchill was leader of the opposition. And of course, uh, Attlee was deputy prime minister to Churchill through much, much of the Second World War. Politically, they had, a, had, a, had many differences, but Attlee was a huge admirer of, of, of Churchill. So actually, so Paul Addison's books, I, I think, are a really interesting insight into Churchill from a view that's different from the norm. So, I've, so for example, I'm, I'm, I'm reading at the moment um, Andrew Roberts' book, Churchill, which is mm. very enjoyable, great fun. But Andrew Roberts is a high Tory. Uh, and so getting a left and a right wing historical perspective on Churchill, I think, uh, gives an interesting balance. So, what, mm. so what, what, what's your favourite Churchill books? Well, I, I've heard it said that Churchill has more biographies written about him than any other man except Adolf Hitler, which I can't prove one way or another, but does give you some idea about how difficult it is where to start. So my, I was, I had pre-warning you were going to ask me this question, and I've actually approached it from a slightly different angle, because I, I'm going to pick out two books, three books, sorry, I should say, about Churchill's early life, which is what we're going to be covering in this episode, which I think are, are really interesting the first is actually by Churchill himself, and it's called, appropriately enough, My Early Life. And it's not a history book, uh, and it's not really an autobiography. It's a gossipy, humorous, often self-deprecating look back at Churchill's childhood, his teenage years, and his army years as well. Not everything he puts in there is true. He's quite happy to share some tall tales and so on. But I think it, it show, it's really interesting that a man who is writing it in his 50s he reflects on his early adventurous life with a sort of wry smile. And it tells so, you a so this, bit... this, Sorry, this is written in the 1930s, is that right? It is, yes, So before right. his period of greatness, if you like. It, exactly that, yes. Wow. And uh, he, he's actually, he's writing it largely because he's desperate for money in the 1930s. He's always desperate for money until after the Second World War. So he writes My Early Life as a way to, to generate some income. And it's this wonderful gossipy autobiography and there's some really laugh out loud moments in it not completely accurate of course he's telling tall tales to impress and it serves as the the base for the 1972 film young winston which is one of my favorite sort of films of that era one of mine too i uh, simon ward is the man who plays young winston he actually looks like the young winston churchill which mm. is just amazing um one of my yeah a film i've watched time and time again in yes. fact, uh, when, a, when a, 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 a colleague of ours, a, a revered professor of literary history, was chucking out his TV DVDs, um, I sort of <laughs> rescued his copy of Young Winston from the skip. I thought, that's not going in the, in, in the bin. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a great film. If you've never seen it, listeners, well worth tracking down. You can get it on streaming services or on DVD. It's a long film, but really enjoyable. It was loosely based on my early life, which I think reflects, it's a really interesting reflection on what Churchill has learned or hasn't learned from his military adventures. Very readable. A second book, which is in some ways is a little bit of a corrective to my early life, but was written while Winston Churchill was still alive, 
is Randolph Churchill's first volume of what was meant to be the definitive life story of Winston Churchill. Of course, Martin Gilbert would take that series and turn it into the official um, or authorised history, if you will, when Randolph died. But Randolph did complete volume one, which is simply called Youth. Enormous volume, and there's a companion volume of documents goes with it. Now, Randolph Churchill's a fascinating character in himself. Randolph is, of course, Winston's only son, for the listeners who aren't quite sure who we're talking about. Led a chaotic life. He had all of Winston's wildness, but none of his luck, and perhaps not his talents either. So he's he's a real wild man um, through most of his life, and, and a bit of a beast as well. It has to be said to, to uh, particularly the women in his life. But that's a, a different topic. But he did produce the first volume called Youth. And one thing Randolph had was he had been a journalist. Um, he'd been a not very successful politician, and he had been a soldier in the, in the Second World War. And he brings to the uh, the volume on youth and the, particularly the volume on Churchill's battlefield experiences, I think he brings a soldier's eye to it because he's been in action himself and Randolph enjoyed action just like his father did. And he also had the benefit of he could actually speak to his father about some of these. Uh, he started work on it before Winston died. And some people have criticised it because it's the, the description of actions and battles and campaigns is very detailed. But at the same time, it is fascinating. And I think it's really written with a soldier's eye. It's actually that the, the military sections are a really good military history. Um, one of the tragedies of Randolph is he never really wrote a volume that established him, but it gives some hint about what he might have done. And I think it's a really interesting book if you're after Winston's young life, but um, seen through a slightly different prism, written by his son, who had, of course, seen his father up close as well. And Randolph's not afraid to criticise his father at times as well. And descriptions of battles and campaigns are, are some of the best, I think. OK, Spence. You've given us two out of your three books. Which one's the third? So the third is a more recent book, and it's Simon Reid's book, Winston Churchill Reporting, which was only published a few years ago. And Simon Reid's a journalist himself, was interested in Winston Churchill's early life, and particularly his time when he was both a soldier and a journalist. And he was filling this slightly nebulous world where he was reporting on what was going on directly from the front lines whilst still serving in the British Army, which definitely strained the bounds of what was not necessarily legal, but certainly what was possible for the army. The army had an interesting relationship with the press in the 1890s. Some generals liked to have press men on hand. Others liked to keep press as far away as possible. And the exploration of Churchill, how he worked as a journalist, and also how he thought as a soldier by Simon Reid, I think he's very, very good. It's a very lively read, and it's it's entertaining. And, and also, I think it gives you a, a good insight into Churchill's the fact that he was simply a creature of war. He, he was always fascinated by war and combat and the experience of being under fire. And he never lost that thrill. And I think that that understanding that his physical courage begins at a very early age, it only begins as a young soldier, is fundamental to understanding the moral courage that he has later on in his career. Well, I, I would agree with that. And of course, there's that famous anecdote that as prime minister, he's in central London up on a roof somewhere during an air raid and his staff are trying to hustle him inside to safety. And he says, I love the bangs. And um, he's a man, I think, who thinks of himself as a soldier throughout his life. I mean, he he's only a, a professional soldier for a very short time. He mm -hmm. always sees politics as his main ambition, but he has that sense of himself as a soldier. And I don't yes. think we can understand Churchill uh, throughout his career without latching on to that. 
course, this this has mm. its downsides rather than its upside, that he was inclined to think that he knew better than some of his generals. Some cases he did, but um, you know, having having the man at the top who thinks he's a soldier, it's it's really significant. Yeah, I think too it tells us something, and this is what we something we can get into as we begin the podcast, essentially about the fact that I think one of Churchill's weaknesses, having been a soldier and being an extremely courageous, almost to the point of reckless soldier, he tended to think of all his other soldiers or all his generals, I should say. In the same sense, he wanted men who he saw himself in. He wanted the adventurer. He wanted the daring do. He wanted the Indiana Jones at war style character. Whereas the more, shall we say, um, intellectual generals or, or those who weren't quite in that mould, Wavell Springs to mind, for example, uh, probably the only British high commander ever published a volume of poetry. He and Churchill just were, were not, the, although they were both soldiers, they were not soldiers the same type or stamp but i'm getting ahead of myself there because we're going to cover the second world war in a later episode we we, we, we we certainly are okay well let's start at the beginning so winston churchill is born 1874 from memory Blenheim that's palace right. now that suggests he's uh he's quite posh <laughs> you could certainly say that he's born into the aristocracy and He's born into a very famous military lineage, of course, because his distant ancestor was John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough. And growing up in an aristocratic family of the time in the 1870s and 1880s, there was a strong military feel to a lot of aristocratic families because they often trace their, their, their aristocratic position to fighting in wars centuries earlier. If you backed the king or you backed queen or whoever you backed in those conflicts, you could be rewarded with your landed estates. And the Churchills owed Blenheim Palace to the Battle of Blenheim, of course, fought in the early 1700s. And so Churchill grew up suffused and surrounded with military imagery that wasn't abstract. It was connected to him. These, this was his direct ancestor. And I think that that exercised a huge influence on his young mind, because when we read about his youth, from a very early age, he's obsessed with war. He's obsessed with firearms and toy soldiers and military history. Now, many young boys go that route. I know I did. But Churchill's interest is of a stamp even above that. He's he's absolutely fascinated with it. And one of my favourite things actually to, to read is extracts of his stories, his fiction that he wrote when he was a schoolboy, because it's some of the most lurid war stories and war prose you can imagine, featuring heroic cavalrymen dying valiantly, fighting the Russians, strangely enough. Uh, Russia, of course, Britain's main imperial enemy in the 1880s and 1890s. But it shows that this, this was a, a boy turning into a teenager who was absolutely full of the, the thrill of war and the thrill of military history. Yeah, and uh, without delving too much into psycho babble, uh, he had a he was neglected by his parents, as indeed many aristocratic ch children were, and he he grew to hero worship his father, didn't he? Who was uh, the maverick, a uh, maverick pol politician, Lord Randolph Churchill. His son, of course, named after uh, Churchill's, Churchill's father, who um, was a leading Tory, Tory Democrat. Tory Democrat, uh, yes. Resigned as Chancellor of the Exchequer, fully expecting 
that his resignation would be turned down by the Prime Minister Lord Salisbury, uh, uh, was rather dismayed to find that he wasn't, and actually he he was exiled to uh, to the back benches. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that I think Churchill and many biographers have picked up on this. Winston Churchill, throughout his life, looked up to his father, a rather idealised version of his father, who he didn't really know mm. that well. Mm. And there are suggestions that actually what he's trying to do throughout his life is to prove himself to his dead father that he wasn't the sort of useless individual that uh, his father appeared to to think that he was. Mm. And um, all of this, I think, also is important in the sense that because he lacked a father's hand in his teens and early 20s, this meant that Winston went off in a bit of a wild direction, whereas perhaps a a fatherly hand steering him towards the centre might have actually reined him in a little. Now, whether that would have resulted in a less interesting character or a less exciting career, I'm I'm not sure. But Churchill is a man, I think, always who feels he has a point to prove. Mm, mm, I absolutely agree. He had a very a difficult relationship with with both his parents growing up. A very very it made his harsh um, childhood. And as you rightly say, Gary, this was not uncommon for aristocratic children at the time. But what is a little bit uncommon is that Winston Churchill absolutely craves parental love. Um, he craves love from his mother and he craves approval from his father. And he doesn't get either. And, it, you know, some of his letters from school to his parents are actually quite heartbreaking. You know, you've got this child who just wants some acknowledgement from his parents. And uh, his, his mother, American, of course, uh, Jenny Jerome, which became Jenny Churchill, the, the talk of London society for her extravagant affairs, including with the future King Edward VII. Um, Lord Randolph, by the mid-1800s, basically a disgraced politician. Disgraced, perhaps too strong a word, but a failed politician who was once tipped to be the prime minister, considered one of the most exciting conservative ministers in British politics. Uh, as you say, these attempt to do something, perhaps bring down the government, perhaps cause a, a commotion, fail completely, and he was basically cast to the back benches. And he was increasingly bitter about his own life, Lord Randolph, uh, frustrated at his wife's infidelity, frustrated at the end of his career, and looking at his eldest son, Winston, and seeing what he thought was just a wastrel and a scoundrel. And your, your point about Winston's admiration for Lord Randolph is very interesting, because it's been identified by a number of biographers as being crucial to Winston's psyche. And crucially, Winston hero-worshipped his father, even though his father was a very distant character. And this feeds into Winston's conception of, of what a hero looked like, a conquering figure, a powerful figure, a courageous figure, uh, very much in the sort of the muscular Christianity style of the late 1800s. Um, and he was desperate for a chance to not just do the the day-to-day -day work at school, but to prove himself as a figure worthy of his father's attention and affection. And in the context of the 1880s and 1890s, the, the, the route to go for that, if you wanted adventure, was you were going to be a soldier and head out to the fringes of the empire. Well, before he got there, of course, he went off to Sandhurst, where he did okay. I think he was 20th out of 130 or something like that. So by no That's means... Right. Top of the pile, but not a duffer either. And of course, he actually liked in his writings to to make out that he was a bit of a duffer and uh, you know, achieve against the odds. He was commissioned into the Fourth Hussars, smart and critically expensive cavalry regiment. And I think his his mother was quite strapped for cash 
well, I mean, they weren't they weren't begging in the streets, do we say? But by aristocratic terms, they didn't have that much money. Mm. Um, and so that's one of the things I think which propels him to go to the east, because quite simply, living uh, a life of a of a cavalry subaltern in England, I think Fourth Hussars would order shot when when he joined them, was just mm -hmm. incredibly expensive. So by heading out to to east to the east to India, you had the chance of adventure. You had the chance to make a name. And of course, this is a, a fairly frequent theme in the British Army of this period, that actually soldiers do get seconded to places, you know, like the, organizations like the West African um, Frontier Force and all the rest of it. But also, it's a way of making his fortune, partly by by, by, by living cheaply. And I think, I can't remember who it, who, who it was, but suggested that going to India and um, and particularly the sort of process of, uh, of of reading this 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 regime of reading he put himself through was Churchill's equivalent of going to university because of course he never did after mm. Harrow he, he he didn't go to university he went into the army but he was very much a self-educated man mm. Mm. this is a very interesting aspect of Churchill's life and, and I mentioned earlier my early life Churchill really plays up that he was a duffer at school and Churchill wasn't a duffer at school but if he was interested in a subject like history he was very good at it. If he wasn't interested in the subject, like maths, he had no interest in it at all, and he just wouldn't do any work in that subject. And when he was interested, he could motivate himself to prodigious levels of work. You mentioned he graduated 20th out of 130 cadets, uh, which he absolutely did. But let's not forget, he only got into Santos at the third attempt. His first attempt, he failed the exam utterly. He did no preparation, crashed out. Second attempt, did a bit better, still failed it. Third attempt, he enlisted the services of a crammer, a specialist tutor, to cram knowledge into his head. And even then, he only managed to scrape in 91st out of 102 applicants, which was actually why he ended up in the cavalry. In those days, the level that you entered, Sanders, dictated what um, regiment you were allowed to join. So the, the real bright sparks got to go in the smart line regiments. The duffers were sent off to the cavalry because it was like you don't need a lot of brains, but you do need a lot of blood and guts. Yeah. So it's an just you were saying about him educating himself in India is a really interesting point because um, I, I agree with a lot of his biographers that this was Churchill's university because his capacity for reading and memorization of information was absolutely enormous. You know, he could recite huge chunks of literature and poetry completely from memory without failing and immersing himself in the regimental library as he did in india obviously lots of free time at the uh, lots lots of opportunity in the hot weather you're not going to go out you're going to read instead um was a really important educational process for him let's just say there's a, another great british military figure who had done very much the similar thing a hundred something years before uh arthur wellesley sent mm. out to india in the late 1790s he too took lots of books and read voraciously uh, the future Wellington, of course, didn't go to university, but in many ways, going to India, in more senses than one, was his his university. Going back to Sandhurst, I must throw this in. Having taught at Sandhurst uh, many years ago, I should say that actually there is a lecture theatre there called the Churchill Hall, which is a very nasty example of 1960s brutalist <laughs> architecture and known to generation of students, cadets, as a concrete sleeping bag. As in, they're <laughs> shoveled in there to a, a nice nice warm lecture theatre with a, with some academic like me droning on, heads down, 
lights go down, you know, and you can hear the sound of snoring in the background. So that's Churchill's influence on modern day Sandhurst. <laughs> I do wonder whether Churchill might have snoozed through a few lectures of his own at Sandhurst in the 1890s. And actually, that, that's, that's worth just reflecting on a little bit about what kind of military education would Churchill have had in the 1890s? Because Sandhurst had been uh, around, in fact, for decades. Uh, I believe from memory it was founded in the 18. 1830s as uh, as a sort of training college, but I stand uh, to be correct. No, it's, on it's that. a bit earlier than that. Uh, it's it's late 18th century, early 19th century. But, so it's, uh, uh, but, yeah, so it's yeah. been a, been around for a long time. Two historians, um, one of whom taught at Sandhurst. We don't know when it was founded. We don't know when it was founded. So write in and tell us we know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but. What what I do know is that for, for many years, Sandhurst was considered basically nothing more than a place to send troubled some young aristocrats and that they, the educational syllabus at Sandhurst was not considered in any way um, intense. Uh, there was very few staff. Mainly, Sandhurst seemed to be an excuse for wild young men to run around, uh, biff each other and play dangerous pranks on one another. But that had actually I, begun to change. No, nothing like that at all today. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but but by the 1890s, Santos was changing. There was, uh, in response, it, it had slowly been changing, in fact, from the 1870s when the, the looming threat of a modern German army and, and the efficiency of the German army had really shaken some of the dust off parts of the British army and said, well, we need to be a lot more efficient. We need to think a lot more about education. And it had been a very slow process, a bit like turning around a super tanker. But by the 1890s, the Santos curriculum was becoming, if not as good as it would be 10 years later, it was certainly improving. And of course, Winston Churchill would be one of the first to experience the more modernised Sandhurst education, which emphasised, amongst other things, the importance of uh, in the, the vernacular of the day, doing the right thing, which which actually meant taking initiative, but doing it sensibly. Uh, lots of military sketching as well, actually. There's mm. there's, there's a great emphasis on, on the practical skills that you would need for reconnaissance, for for example. So going to Sandhurst in, in, in the period that, that Churchill was there, uh, 1890s, it, it was an edge. It wasn't really training. It was also education. I think that's, that's, it's worth, making that point. I mean, all sorts of problems with it. But uh, Churchill, it's not like someone just being spat out the far end of a public school and going mm. straight off into the army. He did receive uh, a degree of, of training and education, which I think he found to be valuable when he actually uh, started uh, service with, with his regiment. Mm. Mm. Okay, we've got to India. When does he first see active service so just before he goes to india actually he does not so much see active service but he comes under fire for the first time and this is his quite celebrated holiday to cuba famous for him discovering cigars among other things i seem to remember yes although i some biographers say he'd already discovered cigars what he discovered in cuba was the best cigars and uh, it reminds me a little bit of a quote uh, that he in a letter to his mother um some years after this he said there's no doubt that we are both you and i equally thoughtless spendthrift and extravagant we both know what is good and we both have to have it uh, and so discovering cuban cigars gave him a love of that particular tobacco which he never lost and um, Fascinating adventure in itself because it's driven. This is before he actually goes to India. He's short of money, as he always is, 
The fourth Hussars are an expensive, smart regiment, and you need to pay a lot of your mess bills. You need to maintain your horses. He's looking for a way to make money, and he's a little bit restless and bored. He wants to go and see some action. And suppose the story goes that he supposedly went through the papers looking for a war he could travel to and discovered there was an ongoing war in Cuba, the Cuban War of Independence between the Spanish authorities and Cuban guerrillas. So he took a holiday from the army. He took another army officer with him, who was also on holiday, and he went out to view the, the Cuban War of Independence up close and crucially report on it as well and get paid for it. And this was much as he liked to boast, the first time anybody took a shot at him. Now, it was probably a Cuban rebel firing an antique firearm from far out of range, and it probably sailed several hundred yards over his head, but it didn't matter. He'd been shot at without effect, and he'd found it exciting. And what's interesting is what an outrageous action this was. Um, It's not entirely unknown for British officers to take a holiday and use it to go and observe a war. It was done in the American Civil War, for example. But to do this and also write and get paid about it was very, very difficult. And Churchill got out of that by saying, well, I was on holiday. I wasn't actually serving in the military when I was reporting. Churchill, I think, was described by David Canadine as being an aristocratic adventurer. And this is a very good example of this because this is not quite gentlemanly behaviour. Going off to somebody else's war, as you mentioned, it's been done before. So Colonel Fremantle serving with the Confederates, Gettysburg and all the rest of it, but actually working for a living, being a journalist, getting paid for this. This is not quite gentlemanly behaviour. And this is something I think that characterises the way that Churchill is viewed by his like class peers throughout his life. He's, mm-hmm. Even though he's a blue-blooded aristocrat, his cousin is a Duke of Marlborough and all the rest of it, he's not quite aristocratic in that sense mm. i think and it's partly personality driven partly as, as you rightly say he is such a spendthrift but he he's never afraid to get his hands dirty in the sense of making money by doing work by which he means journalism of course mm. and this i think mm. sets him aside from most of his aristocratic or, or at least upper class peers Mm. Uh, and it's noted, as you rightly say, that the Times, for example, reports on Churchill's reporting uh, with a great line. It said, it writes, spending a holiday fighting other people's battles is rather an extraordinary proceeding, even for a Churchill. Because remember, Churchill's parents were also frequent in the news, especially his mother. So they were considered a bit of a scandalous family. But for Winston to go out, and as you rightly say, Gary, he's not just there as a dilettante, as an observer. He's actually getting paid. He's working out there. He's very, very, um, well, it raises eyebrows in British society. But that's in 1895. Then he's posted to India, as we've already discussed. And in the next year, 1897, he's actually going to see action for the first time in British Army service. And this is largely forgotten now in British military history, the Malakand expedition, which is up on the northwest frontier of what is then British India. It's now the modern-day Afghan-Pakistan border. And he heads up there as a soldier and also somewhat unofficial journalist. And this is where Churchill starts to get... The, the line between soldiering and journalism starts to get very, very blurred because he can't say, well, I'm on holiday, I'm entitled to do what I want. Now he's actually in service. And this is, I think, another example of Churchill pushing the boundaries of what is, there's no legal requirement about this, but he's certainly pushing the boundaries of what's considered acceptable in the British army at the time. As we're dealing with the whole context of imperialism, an incredibly emotive and controversial topic, 
and we're not going to get into the rights and wrongs with it today. That's a separate podcast in its own right. I think we just need to see Churchill as being a man of his time, an army officer who really didn't think too deeply about the morality of what he was getting into. I think that's absolutely fair. This was a man who'd grown up with the empire just as a fact of life. Uh, no different to uh, you know, the, the fact the grass was green or the sky was blue. And he, he didn't, though he was a, a believer in the empire, he didn't really think deeply about the empire in that sense. This was, just, especially as a young man, this was just part of, of British life. And um, for him, I think he saw the empire as an opportunity for adventure in his youth, more so than anything else. And the expedition he was about to embark on up to the northwest frontiers, a great example of this, the northwest frontier between Afghanistan and what was then British India, always a source of trouble and raids and violence and lawlessness in many respects. Not too different, it has to be said, from the present day. And there would be occasional punitive raids, oh, sorry, not punitive raids, there would be occasional raids by the Afghans into India, and then that would prompt punitive expeditions from the British and Indian army to go and push them back and punish them. And the Malakand expedition was an example of this. But this was going to be Churchill's first actual experience in battle not just being shot at by some Cuban rebels in the jungle, but actually being in battle. And he was determined he wanted to be in the thick of it. And a great a true story that captures something of Churchill is he deliberately bought a beautiful grey horse to go on this expedition with to mark him out from his fellow officers who tended to prefer browns and tan horses, which were less conspicuous in the Afghan plains. He wanted to be noticed. So he bought a horse that people could quite clearly see him on and they go, that's Winston Churchill there. Wow, he's doing something very brave. And here I think we see some of his recklessness because in the uh, the, the, the fighting, which is actually quite bitter, it's small scale, but it's quite bitter between British and Afghan forces. The Afghans, essentially tribal raiders, but quite well armed. There's a, a pretty prolonged firefights uh, at various points. There's violent ambushes. The Afghans don't take prisoners and the British and Indians don't take Afghans prisoners. So it's a pretty deadly environment. And at the, the peak of a particular action, Churchill is seen riding up and down behind a firing line on his grey horse with bullets sailing and whizzing all around him. And he's doing it to get noticed. He wants somebody to see him and recognise how brave he is. And perhaps that's speaking to his, his need for admiration and acknowledgement that's drawn from his family or his troubled family. But he captures this as well. He captures something about his arrogance because Churchill... I think he has no fear of being killed in battle, but he also believes that it's impossible for him to be killed in battle. And he writes later about riding this grey pony. He says, to ride a grey pony along a skirmish line is not a common experience, but I had to play for high stakes and have been lucky to win. Besides, I am so conceited, I do not think the gods would create so potent a being for so prosaic an ending. Let's <laughs> um, be a touch more cynical about that i mean I, I don't disagree with anything you said so far but also he is a man who's a young man in a hurry and how do you get ahead of this large number of other young men who are serving in the army at this stage at at his rank and his position of his career at this part of his career you do so by getting yourself noticed it's not just notice i think in order to boost his ego there's certainly something of that he wants to catch the selector's eye, if I can put it that way. And how do you get on by doing be, being outrageously brave? Uh, mm. I could easily believe that he thought he had a char charmed life. 
And mm, mm. when we come on to the discussed church in, in the First World War in a, in, a, in a later podcast, I'll say something about how I really do think he did have a sharp life in, in, in the First World War. But this is a man who has his eye on where he wants to go, and he's prepared to run risks to 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 get there. Because even at this stage, I think it's fair to say that he does not see soldiering as a long time, long term career. Mm. It's a stepping stone to a political career. How would you get yourself noticed by doing outrageously brave things? Uh, absolutely right. Uh, I and this is I saw directly right on the point that how do you get get on in the army? The eighteen nineties, you get noticed, you get noticed, and then you get championed. You get drawn into perhaps one of the informal rings, the Roberts Ring, based in India, the Wolsey Ring, mainly based in Africa, even the Kitchener Ring that becomes based in in Egypt, and then your career is promoted within this group. And Churchill needs it, doesn't have a patron, which is quite interesting, whereas some of the young officers have a patron, either through family connection or personal friendship. They'll have a more senior officer who will, will do his best to promote them uh, and, and bring them on expeditions and so on. Churchill doesn't. In fact, Churchill is so wild and so erratic in some ways nobody really wants him to come on their expeditions in fact there's an effort to try and stop him coming on the Malakand expedition which ultimately fails um but it's it's an important moment for Churchill it's his first time actually really in an intense firefight which undoubtedly it is and also it's the first time he writes not just a newspaper column about this he writes a book about this which is simply called the story of the Malakand field force um by Churchill's later standards, it's a fairly small book, um, only about 8,000 copies published. It's rushed out so fast, Churchill bangs it out on a typewriter, apparently with a cigar jammed in his mouth. It's absolutely full of typos. First editions of this book are really valuable because it's just full of spelling mistakes and typos and all kinds of errors, which Churchill later said he was very embarrassed about. But it's it, it does sell well. It's popular. It's exciting. In the sense of the day, it's very well written. And it establishes now that he is both a soldier and a journalist. But of course, that comes with a consequence, too, because it's going to really turn off some of the British army officers who he's going to have to work with. And it's worth mentioning, even at this stage, Churchill is a great prose stylist of the English language. He's not a, a not a workaday journalist. He actually can he can use language magnificently. Uh, and this is something that I guess it's a gift he's born with, but he works at it as well. And this, this is one, one, not the least of the important talents that Churchill has. Actually, he can he can make the English language work work for him. Mm, mm. And, and that is a, a, a talent. He's also got an additional talent with that. He can write fast. He can produce copy quickly. Now, that sometimes has consequences, like the Malakan book, which is full of spelling mistakes, but he can churn out these, and it's not hack work. He is a great stylist, and he only gets better, in fact, as he as he gets older and refines his style. So, uh, and of course, he's been there. He's been on the front line. He's seen this. But I think the Malakand expedition is also an experience for him to adds to this idea that that courage will will be rewarded. He's taken risks. He's ridden up and down the the firing line on his pony, trying to get noticed. Real risk: a stray bullet goes through him, and that's the end of him. And he, it convinces him, if he already, if he didn't already believe this, that he can lead a charmed life. And also that courage will be rewarded, that taking risks leads to good things, because the Malakam book is a breakthrough for him in his writing. So it, it, each risk he takes, he wins. It's like a gambler playing on, on pretty weak cards, but betting the house each time and winning each time. 
He's he's not a man who 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 is not conventionally religious. Uh, he's an Anglican. He goes to church every now and again, but he he does not have a a Christian faith in any recognisable way. But he believes in something. He believes in fate. He believes in destiny. More to the point, he believes in his own destiny. And I think this is something which gives him a strong underpinning of of confidence throughout his career. And I think it's founded at this period for, for the reasons that you, you've just mentioned. Mm. But it doesn't win him universal approval, of course. And I mentioned previously <laughs> some of the rings, uh, Roberts, Wolsey, and Kitchener, where he was starting to form a, a ring around Egypt and East Africa. And, of course, it's Kitchener he's going to have to work with next. And I think this is quite interesting because, of course, he'll work with him again in the First World War because Kitchener is about to lead an Anglo-Egyptian army to reconquer Sudan. And Churchill learns about this and he's desperate to get out there. But the fourth hussars aren't actually part of the expeditionary force. They're remaining in India. And Kitchener doesn't want Churchill. Um, Churchill and Kitchener do not like each other at this stage. Kitchener thinks Churchill's a wild man and an idiot. And uh, Churchill thinks that uh, Kitchener is a vulgar common man. There's someone else who doesn't want Churchill. Captain Douglas Haig. (laughs) <laughs> who is uh, seconded from the 7th Hussars, so another Hussar regiment. He's commanding a squadron of Egyptian cavalry. And for the 1898 Sudan ex- ex- expedition, uh, Haig is asked, you know, would you uh, mind if we attach Winston Churchill to uh, his squadron as a supernumerary? And Haig turns him down. And so there's interesting dynamics going on here because Kitch- uh, Haig also is very critical of Kitchener. Uh, but so 20 odd years, 25 years before the First World War, you've got three key figures who actually sort of know each other and don't get on terribly well. So these are very deep roots from the Somme campaign uh, running back to, to the late 1890s. They absolutely are. And, uh, but, but Churchill's a, a force of nature and he's, he's not going to be denied his opportunity to, to get out to Sudan, which, of course, he does and joins the 21st Lancers um, through a complex process of basically switching officer roles and so on. Churchill, incidentally, there's no evidence he ever trained with a lance. He was a hussar, their sword-armed cavalry. He may have done a little bit of lance work in basic training, but he's, he's not a lancer. He's in a lancer regiment. He can't use a lance. You know what the, the joke in the army was about the 21st Hussars? Sorry, wrong lot. 21st Lancers. They hadn't seen any action because they were relatively recently raised regiment. And so the joke in the army was that their regimental motto was, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> God bless army humour. <laughs> so, so there we have, we, we, we've got Churchill with the 21st Lancers, supernumerary. Super uh, is, is he scribbling on, on in, in his spare moments? Is he a journalist as well at this time? He certainly is. He's also scribbling uh, very furiously, and he's planning to write the book of the campaign as well, which he, he ultimately will. Um, he's also, interesting enough, he's he's been approached informally to do a bit of spying. Um, in the classic tradition of British intelligence, uh, somebody would just say, well, keep your eye out. See what you, you do. Make a note of it and report. And Churchill, with his tremendous memory, is, is very good for this kind of thing, because it's actually an incident in Sudan where Churchill very delightedly captures a dervish warrior. So a dervish, uh, or more correctly, I suppose we call him a Mardist, part of the um, f- Islamic fundamentalist army that is uh, ruling Sudan at the time. Churchill captures him and he's really pleased about this. Frog marches him to headquarters, only to be told, this man is one of our agents. 
Uh, he's paid. He's he's a he's, he's, we've turned him, and he's working for us. And Churchill has been prodding him along with a pistol, and basically very pleased as punch. He's supposedly captured this man. He's actually trying to come in to deliver information as well. So an early experience with spying. But <laughs> his campaign in, in Sudan is, of course, going to be absolutely defined by one of the most famous incidents in in British Victorian military history, and that's the Great Cavalry Charge at the Battle of Omdurman. So Omdurman. I mean, depending on what you count as a cavalry charge. Some people claim it's the last great cavalry charge in British military history. Personally, I I actually don't think it is. But nonetheless, it's old sky, it's 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 uh, old school, I should say. It's uh the first time the 21st Lancers get into action, and it is genuinely lowered couch lances charging towards the enemy, isn't it? It is. This is uh, partially, I think, because the 21st Lancers don't have uh, the battle honours that their more illustrious colleagues do, that an opportunity towards the end of the Battle of Omdurman, which is, is basically a very one-sided engagement with uh, British and Egyptian troops in a defensive position, just having hordes of Mardist infantry surge at them and getting mown down uh, by firepower. And then it looks like the Mardist army is on the brink. It looks like it just needs one last push and it's going to rout and collapse. So the 21st Lancers, seeing this opportunity, decide to come out from the defensive lines the Anglo-Egyptians have and actually launch a, a cavalry charge. But it almost immediately, or, or not immediately, but very quickly, they realise the Mardists are not as um, demoralised as they might have seemed. And also the Mardists are occupying a dry riverbed, which the cavalry is going to go thundering into. And Douglas Haig, of course, who, who is there, uh, at Omdurman, but serving with his Egyptian cavalry, he is often regarded as being, you know, the the, the quintessential cavalryman. You know, completely brainless, charging at the enemy. None of which is true. Uh, he's very, very critical of the command of the Twenty First Lancers because says basically this is not the way a cavalry regiment ought to behave because lives are thrown away. Mm. Um, and Churchill. Uh, uh, Remembering Simon Ward and young Winston, so it must be true, uh, goes into action not with a lance, not with a sword, but with a with a pistol. With a pistol, and not just any pistol, a C96 Mauser pistol, 10-shot automatic. Because as we previously established, Churchill's a spendthrift. He's not going to ride into battle with a standard issue British revolver. He wants an exotic gun, so he's wielding a German Mauser pistol. And it probably saves his life because he's there's this tremendous melee. The cavalry crashes into the modest infantry who don't rout. They actually stand their ground. A lot of the cavalry fall as they fall into the dry riverbed. Really intense close-range fighting here. And people are running at Churchill and indeed other cavalrymen, trying to hamstring the horses, trying to pull the riders off. And the fact Churchill has got 10 shots in his Mauser rather than six, and then a, a difficult reload with a revolver is probably quite crucial. Churchill himself claims that he kills at least three people. This is the first time Churchill kills somebody in battle. Uh, the point blank, people are trying to pull him off his horse and he just shoots them. Um, but he fires all 10 rounds uh, before he's able to extract himself from this. And one does wonder if he'd only had six, and he'd run out of bullets, guns clicking, uh, Armadis might have got him off his horse. And if you went off your horse in this, you were done for, you'd be descended upon. It's only lasts maybe two minutes, this this cavalry smash into infantry, but it must have seemed like a lifetime, actually, in the heart of this. Uh, the Lancers, they lose, uh, 20 men get killed, uh, and uh, some 49 officers and men actually get wounded, so he's stabbed and cut. So this is pretty bloody action. Um, that's, you know, over about somewhere between 25 and 30% of the 
uh, the Trin First Lancers in the charge are killed or wounded. So Fjordshaw's chances of coming out as he does, totally unscathed, especially as he's, you know, he's not even meant to be here. He's not even a Lancer. Adds to this idea he's a charm life. And crucially, it adds to this idea in his own mind that take risks and gamble and it will pay off because not only has he survived, he's taken part in an incredibly exciting event, which he's thrilled by, doesn't really conceive the danger he was in, doesn't reflect on it in that sense. But what a scoop for a journalist. A journalist has ridden at the forefront of a cavalry charge, which is in the classic Victorian tradition, has gone heroically wrong. And he can write about it. And that is huge for him because the book he writes based on Sudan, The River War, it's really his breakthrough. It's an absolute smash hit. Um, he also negotiates a terrific deal. He gets paid 30% royalties on this book. I don't know about you or I, Gary. I'd love 30% royalties on a book that I, I wrote. And it sells like hotcakes. And this is really his breakthrough as an author. He makes money from it. It really catapults his fame very high. And what's the lesson he draws from it? It's that taking chances and being courageous and, you know, running wild risks will pay off. It's almost like he dares God to save him each time. And so far he's been saved and he's been rewarded. The fact that yeah. fame and fortune has followed this adventure is not lost on Winston Churchill. And he actually leaves the army after this because he feels he's sufficiently famous to become a politician. And right. So what happens next? He stands for parliament. He does. He runs for, he runs for parliament in Oldham, but he loses. He loses. And, uh, by a narrow margin, but he's defeated in July 1899. And that sort of sends him away with a little bit of a flea in his ear, although he's still telling people he'll be a prime minister one day. Uh, and let's not forget, he's not yet 25 years old. You know, he's still a very young man. But it also gives, again, this is where Churchill later reflects on this, gives him an opportunity because that's July, he loses the election. In October 1899, the Boer War breaks out in South Africa, which will be biggest and bloodiest war of Queen Victoria's reign. And he's not a parliamentarian. He's not a soldier either, and it gives him the opportunity to go out as a journalist. And he goes out as the world's most highly paid foreign reporter. He's paid £250 a month in 1899. Wow. Uh, and bear in mind, he's in, in his mid-20s. That's serious money. It's worth bearing in mind that at this point, his circle of friends and acquaintances are starting to, to rally around. Because, of course... He he's not merely uh, a well-paid journalist. He's the member of a, of a famous aristocratic family. People remember his father, and so even people who are not necessarily terribly well disposed towards Lord Randolph Churchill actually give the benefit of the doubt to to, to his son. So actually, he's he 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 he's not a he's not a nobody. He's not an outsider to start with. But actually, building this level of fame, I think, is all. It all helps the fact he has fantastic connections with all mm. the, the richest people in the land and the aristocracy and people on both sides of the House House of Commons. So he's starting to, to pull it in. I think that says something about his sheer force of personality. Mm. Uh, because if he had been you know, highly successful, but, you know, a miserable so-and-so... <laughs> Not clubbable <laughs> in the terms, or unclubbable in the terms of the of the of the eighteen nineties. He probably wouldn't have been as successful as as he was. But of course, he's none of these things, and mm. he's pretty ruthless at at exploiting his contacts. I think mm. he, he does. He's very very good at pulling the strings, 
And he's, he's one of those young, as you say, he's clubbable because you can invite him to your party or your gathering and things. He's young, he's handsome, he's famous. Uh, he's always got an opinion. And he's very witty, of course, even at this young age, he's very witty. So he's, he makes a lot of connections in London society. Crucially, he's, he's always a regular guest at Lady So-and-So's soiree because he's a young, eligible bachelor and he's funny and witty. And he'll say something controversial that'll get people talking. I think even at this stage, it's worth bearing in mind that although he's from a, a conservative big C uh, background, or a Tory background, if you like, he actually has more in common in his thinking with the Liberals. Mm. And that that's very interesting. There's a great account of that his politics at the time in the 1890s, as a young man, when he's at the dinner table and people are grilling him about it, they can't pin him down. They're at, they ask him things like, well, you're a conservative or liberal. And he just refuses to answer, or he gives a waffling answer because he's he's though he, as you say, he comes from a classic conservative background. You know, his father was a member of the Conservative Party, um, a Tory Democrat. But Churchill is is leaning towards liberalism even at a very young age. And at least one biographer has suggested partially that's at least partially drawn from his experiences in the army. Because one thing Churchill has, which a lot of officers of this period don't have, is an ability and a willingness to talk to the common soldier. Mm. And even though he's this famous, larger-than-life character, he's, he's drawn to the romanticism of the, the average Tommy. And he's got a tremendous memory as well, so that if he meets you and he asks you something about your, your life, he'll remember it when he bumps into you six months later and he can ask you, well, how's your daughter or how's your you know, your wife? And he'll remember their names. And so I think he's drawn towards towards that and he's drawn towards a romantic image of the British working class by extension, I think. And um, although we'll discuss more of that, I'm sure, in future episodes. Yeah, and I think it's also worth bearing in mind that, that his father, as a Tory Democrat, was one of the first people who deliberately reached out to the working classes uh, to bring them into the Conservative Party, because Britain was not a full democracy in the 1880s, 1890s, but it was getting there by stages. And Lord Randolph Churchill discovered, one of the people who discovered the key, that actually working class people would vote Conservative in very large numbers. Mm, mm. And this is something which, of course, kept the Conservatives in power for, for much of the 20, 20th century. The other point, I think, is worth making that the Liberal Party is also, on the whole, run from the top of society. So mm -hmm. Lord Rosebery, the Liberal leader and Prime Minister in the, in the 1890s, he's from a very top, top draw family as well. And so we're not talking about two class-based parties at this stage, although the Liberals are increasingly... Um, a little bit later, they, they get in bed with, with what becomes the Labour Party. There's a sort of liberal Labour alliance. But at this stage, it's entirely possible to be an aristocrat uh, like Churchill is from a big C conservative background, but be drawn to big C liberal party because the liberals actually also encompass a more working class uh, constituency, but so increasingly do the Tories. And so mm. looking at politics at this period in purely class terms doesn't really get us that far. And of course, throughout his career, running ahead of ourselves, Churchill has this amazing appeal to people from all classes. Uh, and, and part of that is for the very reasons we've been talking about. He's a character. He's an adventurer. People know about him. And he does have, in some ways, the common touch. Mm. 
He does. And that is a, a, a useful skill to have. And not, not merely in his political career, but also in his career as a journalist, uh, especially in the Boer War. It's a, he goes out, and it's interesting, when he ships out, obviously it's a sea voyage down to South Africa, he's on the, the ship that's actually carrying the British command staff. Uh, Reavers Buller and his staff are on that ship with Winston Churchill. And Churchill just cannot get anything, any he can't build any relate, kind of relationship with Buller at all. Buller's a bit of a stoic man, a, a bit of a, a man who likes to keep his cards to his chest. So Churchill roams the ship just talking to anybody, um, soldiers, sailors, Anybody he can run into, and he has more fun talking to them than he does talking to the more senior British command staff. Partially, I think the British command staff aren't going to give this journalist anything if they can help it. <laughs> but um, it does show this kind of talent, and it extends, of course, when he reaches South Africa because he arrives in South Africa in the Boer War at really the worst possible time. The big battles that start the war have ended. The British are being besieged in a variety of garrison towns. There's a lull while the British are mustering their forces for a counterattack. And Churchill gets bored. It's interesting. He approaches several people. Uh, there's basically a no man's land that extends miles between where the British are and the Boers are. And he approaches several locals saying, can you smuggle me through Boer lines? I want to go to Ladysmith. And Churchill has this idea he's going to be smuggled through Boer lines, go to Ladysmith, see what's happening, and then be smuggled out and write the scoop of all scoops. And that's exactly the kind of risk taking that he would go for, and and probably he'd have made it happen. There were at least there was at least one person who was willing to try this. Bear in mind, as well, listeners, that Churchill is a massively recognisable figure in the English speaking world. This isn't. He is not a shrinking violet. You know, he's very, very famous. He's visually famous. He's got a very distinctive look. His ginger hair and his features. The Boers are not ignorant. They would have recognised him, I'm sure. He'd have needed a hell of a good disguise. But in the event, he doesn't actually need a disguise because he gets captured, of course. Ah. He goes out on a harebrained scheme in an armoured train, which is brilliantly captured, actually, in the film we've mentioned before, um, Young Winston. I think it was filmed in Wales rather than South Africa, but it really captures that armoured train ambush. Uh, and he's cast off to a prisoner of war camp. And Am I right in, in remembering that uh, Captain Alma Haldane is later, of course, Corps Commander on the Western Front in the First World War. Uh, he's the man who's with Churchill on the armoured train? That's right. He's actually the commander of the armoured train uh, as a young officer, Captain Captain Haldane. And uh, the, the armoured train incident is celebrated and much discussed. And the, the actual action is pretty fierce. You know, the train gets derailed. There's a, um, a, a garrison, if you will, or a, a group of troops on the train, about 120 men. A uh, number of them are killed and injured in the crash. Then they're surrounded and they're under heavy fire. And how, there's some evidence that Haldane, as the officer, basically freezes. He's, he may be concussed by the train crash. He's a bit stunned. He admitted this himself, that he was really stunned. He didn't really know what's happening. And Churchill, who, of course, is not a soldier at this stage, he's a journalist, he, to an extent, he starts rallying people and starts trying to do something. He perceives what needs to be done. And what they need to do is try and clear the blockage on the track and get the train moving again. And he's doing this under very heavy fire. Uh, soldiers around him are being hit. There's Boer artillery firing. There's a Boer artillery shell actually lands, uh, buries itself in muddy ground in front of Churchill and then detonates, smearing him with mud, but fortunately not blowing him in half. So charmed life continues. And after about 20 minutes of mayhem, they... British managed to get part of the train moving again, and off it goes. It's on fire by this stage. The train engineer is badly injured in the head. The train engineer has actually abandoned the train. He's a civilian. He doesn't want anything to do with this. But Churchill's got him back on the train by telling him, no man is ever wounded in the same action twice. 
which I'm not entirely sure is true, but he gets the train <laughs> starts to move. They've loaded it up with wounded men. And Churchill actually jumps on the train engine. But unfortunately, all the carriages are wrecked. They can't come. So the train is pulling off with the wounded. Haldane's trying to lead his survivors alongside it. They can't keep up. They, they're in big trouble. The train's pulling away. And Churchill could have ridden off with that train. Nobody would have criticised him as a journalist, and he behaved very bravely. But he actually jumps off the train and runs back to try and help Haldane's men. He's got no need to do that at all. And he does it, especially the, according to witnesses on the train, the last thing he says is, I have to do something to help those poor devils. That's Haldane's cut-off troops. So he, he runs out to try and help them. And um, in the process, he gets captured and gets marched off to a Boer prison camp. I'm aware that we've been talking for quite some time. (laughs) (laughs) So let's fast forward to the the Boer prison camp. He escapes. Mm. And and, and not only does he escape from the prison camp, he actually makes it uh, back into friendly territory, at least least neutral territory. So from from memory, he uh, it's it's not a particularly secure cab. It's, it's 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 a former school, isn't it? Which has been mm-hmm. turned into a into a military prison. Uh, he 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 escapes, and he finds himself in. Uh, he, he he comes across a is 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 it a gold mine or something like that or a mine anyway. It's mine, yes. And um, and the chap he comes across is one of the few loyal Brits in the area. And he hides him, and he manages to make his way via stowing around a goods train to to, to Portuguese, therefore new, neutral territory. Um, I mean, that's that's the story. Um, how 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 true is it? I and mean, how how close does Churchill come to being being recaptured? Well, j- just as a, a a little one for the listeners, if you're interested in this, Celia Sandy's book. Celia Sandy's, of course, Churchill's granddaughter. Her book, uh, Churchill Wanted Dead or Alive, is a really good account of this. She, she basically followed his footsteps in the 90s and, and tried to lo- locate as many of the family members of people who'd helped or hindered Churchill. It's a very, very good read. Um, it's an incredible adventure. It's just full of chances and good luck. You know, The fact that Churchill manages to meet one of the few loyalists uh, at the time. And these, these kind of things, it's just... It's a boy's own adventure in many respects. And it's, of course, it's occurring to the world's one of the world's most famous journalists. And he does something that I think we forget because we're used in the 21st century to thinking about prison escapes in wartime. Uh, the prison escapes of the First World War and most famously the Second World War, the home runs there, immortalised in film and literature. What Churchill does is the is really it's a first because prisoner taking in, in the Victorian era is actually quite rare. Usually wars of empire, prisoners aren't taken by either side. It's, it's not something that happens. But Churchill to do this, to break out of a prison and then to do a 320 mile home run to neutral territory is completely new. Nobody has done this in, in the same way ever in British military history. Yes, people have escaped from prison. Of course they have. People have escaped from prison camps. But to do it in this way, in an era of the mass media and to be a journalist... And to be able to report on it, completely unprecedented. And it makes him, uh, quite simply, the most famous English journalist in the world because he gets back around Boxing Day, 1899. First thing he does, sends a telegraph about how he's escaped uh, and then immediately writes the story of how he's escaped and it gets serialised. It becomes a mega story, uh, unbelievable story. Interesting enough, Haldane, who was with him on the train, escapes later on the same route but his escape is almost completely forgotten, whereas Churchill's is preserved to, to this very day. So by early 1900, 
Winston Churchill has basically achieved what he set out to achieve. He has not merely national, but international fame. He's extremely well paid as a journalist. He has an exciting military career behind him. And the next step is to go to politics. And in 1900, he finally enters Parliament. Is that back in Oldham? Do you know, I don't actually know. I've got a feeling it is in Oldham. It's certainly in that part of the world. Um, although, again, once again, uh, historians caught out by not being completely sure of their brief. Uh, Churchill <laughs> would not approve of us. Um, but he, he does. He enters politics after a spell, incidentally, in the South African Light Horse. He serves again as a soldier for six months, uh, has a variety of adventures, including liberating his old prison camp before returning home, uh, writing the book of, of the Boer War and his experiences, and then entering politics. And just as we, we conclude this, I think it's interesting to reflect on what Winston Churchill learned about military leadership in this period. And I think fortune favours the brave is the overwhelming lesson he's learned. He's taken outrageous chances at every turn and he's won. Every time the cards are laid on the table, he's got the strong hand and it's taught him to be a risk taker. Uh, it's also taught him that he loves, I think he loves the risk. He's maybe what we would now call an adrenaline junkie. He's thrilled by this and, and it's what, what gets him out of bed in the morning. And slightly more negatively, because he's been a soldier, albeit at, at, at a slightly low level, I think it gives him an inflated view of his own abilities as a commander. It's one thing to lead from the front. Uh, it's and, 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 and be brave, and clear, that's clearly very much what happened to Churchill in this period. I think that what he did in this period, in later years he reflected on this and looked back and thought it actually gave him an understanding of what it was to command at high levels, uh, which is not entirely true, as we will see in later episodes. So I think Churchill, am I being unfair to say he, he, he believes his own propaganda? I don't think you are. Uh, I think that he's come to this conclusion that whether we take the very early church where he says, I'm not going to die, I'm too important or whether he's got this view that, well, when you gamble, it will pay off. All the risks pay off. He's come with this view that, that risk-taking is always going to be rewarded. And he sees opportunities, whereas others see dangers and difficulties. And something that's interesting about Churchill's military career is he's never seen a defeat. He's never seen a disaster. Closest he's coming to 21st Lancers, but even that is a, a heroic failure rather than a complete disaster. You're, if he'd been a generation earlier and he'd been at the Battle of Maywand in Afghanistan or the Battle of Izandwala in, in South Africa, he might have developed a very different view of war. But instead, he's whatever he's done has succeeded and he's never seen the consequences of his actions in a negative sense. And... Possibly we ought to start to wrap up here. In fact, we certainly ought to wrap, wrap up here. I think that his experiences in the 1890s and in the Boer War gives Churchill a romantic view of war, which is both a strength and a weakness. I think it's strength in that it gives him a certain spiritual confidence, if I can almost put it that way. Uh, he's someone who understands war. He thinks it's terrible, but nonetheless, he finds it ex essentially exciting and he sees it as his destiny to, to deal with war. Mm. The weakness is then 
he comes to deal with a very different sort of war between 1914 and 18 and 1939-45. I think he sometimes errs on the side of a romantic view when he should be thinking in terms of the management of war. Mm. And of course, that is exactly what he's doing, what he's supposed to be doing in his roles in the two world wars, is managing wars rather than actually waging them. And so when we come on to look at Churchill in the First and Second World War, I think there's a real struggle going on, but both within Churchill's own, own mind about how to deal with war, and there's certainly a struggle between Churchill and some of his advisors. Mm-hmm. And I, I completely agree with that. And we're going to see, of course, in the next episode, the consequences of risk-taking without proper preparation, thought, and doing the hard work about how an operation is actually going to function when we move into Churchill in the First World War. Did anybody mention Gallipoli? Anyway, <laughs> let's, let's wind it up there. So, Spence, thanks very much. Leading us off, you know, brilliant performance as ever. Really exciting and fascinating topic. And there's a lot more to talk about Churchill, uh, to say about Churchill, I, sh- I, sh- I should say, in the episodes to come. So from me, Professor Gary Sheffield, goodbye. And from me, Dr. Spence Jones, goodbye. Goodbye.